0: Welcome to the Contrast Church Podcast. Contrast is located in Grandview, Ohio, with the mission to help people be with Jesus, become like Him, and live out His mission together. For more information on attending our meetings, our missional communities, or giving, visit contrast.church. Well, good morning. How are we doing? Are we feeling good since yesterday? Big win, right? If you're an OSU fan... Uh, fun fact: I actually grew up in Pennsylvania. Uh, 45. Wow, a mixed crowd there. Uh, 45 minutes from State College, which is where Penn State is, Beaver Stadium, classic, right? Uh, and I will say, I wasn't going to tell you this, but I am. I was a Penn State fan. Uh, I'm more of an NFL. I can't do both college football and NFL now, so I just do NFL. But was a Penn State fan, and I wasn't going to tell you that if we won. But since you guys won, I feel like it's only fair to be like. I'm proud of you guys. Good job. So, And also, most of you are here because you guys won. If you had lost, you would have just like woke up depressed, and then you probably wouldn't have come to church. So, uh, the Lord's hand was in that win, I think. Um, so, welcome if you're new. We're in the book of John, uh, week four. So, if you uh, turned into John while Sarah was reading. Thank you, by the way, Sarah. Uh, we've, we've This is our fourth week. The uh, chapter one, the first week, is really what we call the prologue of John. And uh, that's essentially like this sort of um, larger vision picture of Jesus. And uh, John starts in the beginning, kind of like the beginning of the Bible, in the beginning, because he's drawing us into the idea that this word that he says, the word, the audible words of God became flesh, Jesus, and dwelt among us, has always been in existence since the beginning of time. And so he gives us this massive scope of how big Jesus is. And then he starts to bring it into a tangible uh, narrative for the most part. And so the first two weeks we talked about Jesus being the word and just how big of a deal that is in light of God and what his plan is for humanity. And then the second week we talked about the idea that he became flesh and uh, the word we use is tabernacled, that he tabernacled among us, which means he took up camp among us. He lived on our block in our little street and became human just like us, to experience life like us, to show us what it looks like to be human. And, uh, and then last week We got into the the really fun hodgepodge uh, calling of each disciple. And one of the main things that I try to communicate that maybe you you haven't known if you've grown up in the church uh, is just the familiarity everybody had with everyone in this culture. It wasn't a very big area. And so Jesus has been around for 30-some years and had a trade and and worked. And so a lot of these people would have known maybe who Jesus was as a carpenter um, and potentially been even close friends, or some of them may have even been related. Some of his disciples to him, and so there's a lot of just really close proximity that we don't always think about. And so this week that we've been talking about in John, what I call Welcome Week, which is similar to like if you have went to college as a freshman, your first day, they like pump the whole first week just full of stuff, so that you can just really be, like make friends anywhere you go. And um, I I, grew, I went to my undergrad was at a small Christian school. And so we had events like every night of the week, and basically if you wanted a guy to come to a room with other guys, you just bought like endless amounts of Buffalo Wild Wings, um, which honestly still might work today, if I'm, if I'm being honest. Uh, but we would do that, and it, the goal was like, hey, you're, you don't know anyone, you don't know anyone, you guys should be friends. And some of you may be experienced, like you have lifelong friends now from that very week. But that's essentially what John is writing about in John 1, 1 through basically 2-ish, is that He's talking about this welcome week, and so I want to give you just an outline because it's going to help you understand, one, how long they've been following the rabbi Jesus, and two, um, what brings us to today and the story that we're going to talk about. So day one is in verse 19 to 28. That's John the Baptist being interrogated by religious leaders, Pharisees, because they're like, what are you doing? Why are you doing this baptism? And telling people to repent. Day two is John the Baptist points out uh, Jesus, and he says, this is the one whose you know, shoes I'm not worthy of tying, and, you know, and he'll be baptized with fire. That's 29 through 34. And then day three is John the Baptist having his two disciples follow Jesus, which is, we know, to be Andrew, whose brother is with Simon Peter, and also, most likely, John, who wrote the gospel. And so day four brings us then to Andrew bringing, one of his, bringing his own brother to Jesus and encountering Jesus and then Jesus naming him Peter, Simon Peter. Day five is then Philip and Nathaniel, and they both have their own kind of unique stories. Uh, And then we'll call day six a travel day. (laughs) Uh, And then day seven brings us Wednesday evening to the wedding at Cana, which is where we're talking about today. So Welcome Week is coming to an end. Uh, Jesus has gathered his disciples in orientation, and they took a little trip. If you're curious where Cana is, there's a map right here. That will be helpful, and you understanding that. It's in the red there, and so most of these disciples lived in cities around the Sea of Galilee. A lot of them were fishermen. Uh, Nathaniel is known to be from this area. Nathaniel, who we talked about, is also probably known as Bartholomew in the book of Luke and was one of the 12. Uh, and this is about a day or so walk from where they were at in Galilee. So they take a day walk to Cana. If you notice, Cana is in the red. Directly below it is Nazareth. That is where Jesus grew up most of his childhood. And that's where he he was known. He's Jesus, son of Joseph of Nazareth. So that's how he would be known. And this wedding kind of makes sense as to why his mom and him would be invited because it's not that far in cities. You know how, like, if you're in a little podunk town, like, you podunk towns got to stick together, you know? So uh, I grew up where uh, our town was pretty small. We had a Walmart, so we weren't, like, that small. But every little town around us did not. So even though they would get smashed by us in sports, uh, at our town, they would still go to our Walmart. So I like to think of a similar idea, is that they shared each other's trades and things like that in small towns. So it's, it's not unlikely that they wouldn't know someone. Like I said, small town, people knew Jesus. And, uh, and so I want to get into the story today of this wedding. And if you want to see, some of you are very visual, and you're like, I've never even been to the Middle East. What does it even look like? This first picture is where this region would probably be. There's a lot of different arguments by uh, archaeologists and scholars about where exactly... Cana specifically was. But there's certain, certain areas in, uh, around there where they're trying to determine where exactly it was. But it's pretty commonly agreed upon that it is an area called Kerbet Kana, which is in this photo. Uh, if you see, that is an olive grove or field or whatever you want to call it uh, down in the valley, because all the water flows down. But it's sort of barren. As you can see, this is pretty common in the Middle East. But there's certain areas of trees and things like that. And then the next photo is some of the ruins in what they believe to be the town. Uh, and there's also been other historical events after first century that they would have built things uh, in that nature, but that's kind of where they speculate, so if you can kind of visualize the type of setting that we're dealing with here and, uh, and that idea. But then I also want to help us do a little bit of research on first century weddings in the ancient Near East, which I'm sure is a topic that you love to study. But the reason why is because it will really help us understand what kind of wedding we're dealing with here. The way that we do weddings aren't all that different, but... They also are in, in other ways. Uh, for example, in a first century wedding, if you were gonna get married, it had to be preceded by a engagement, which we kind of do today. Uh, some people are maybe just go right for it, go right to the courthouse and like we're getting married, but typically you get engaged, right? And engagement means, hey, I'm I want to marry you. Now in this culture, engagement was very serious. In fact, they called a betrothal, and if you were to break a betrothal, you would have to go through the same requirements of a divorce. So it's a very serious thing. That's primarily because in this culture, your relationships were typically orchestrated by a community, meaning your family knew their family, her family, and they were like, you know, they had talked a lot about this and stuff. It wasn't like you just went on a few dates and were like, I'm going to do this. So because of that, it was a lot more serious when you were betrothed, which remember if we have talked about the story of Mary and Joseph, Mary was betrothed to Joseph. So him finding out that she was all of a sudden pregnant was this big provocative thing, and he had the right to obviously divorce her, and that's why they say divorce. They weren't married yet, but that idea was still very important in this culture. The second thing, uh, which helps us date this week, is that if you were a young woman, you typically got married on a Wednesday. If you were a widow, you got married on a Thursday. So all of you who are trying to get married, you're like, let's do a Friday, that'll be edgy. How about a, how about a Wednesday? I don't even know if people would show up, but a Wednesday seems like a really edgy day to get married. Uh, so I don't know, you can try it and see if people show up. But that was, that was the norm back then. And the way that they would go about the ceremonies and everything was really unique. So a long time ago, Trig Viker spoke here about a sort of end times passage in Matthew. And the parable Jesus was telling was about uh, these bridesmaids, essentially, who were carrying and holding these like lamps and, or torches is probably a better way to put it because I don't think of like an Ikea lamp, like a like a fire torch. Uh, and they're waiting for this groom to come. And the groom is Jesus in this story. And, and the point of the, the parable is that some of the, Jesus took longer than they thought they didn 't know when he was coming, and they ran out of oil and so because they ran out of oil, some of them had to try to go find some and In the meantime, he came back and then they missed out on, on running to jesus 's you know um, house and having the doors locked it 's this kind of end times idea of like, hey, you always have to be prepared because you don 't know the time and place of when Jesus will come back and that, that kind of a thing but the Illustration of what was going on was common practice in weddings. So, for example, if you're going to get married in this culture, your bridesmaids are going to be all at your house or family house typically, and you're all having a good time. I think bachelorette party maybe. And then the groom is going to, all his groomsmen are going to have a good time at his house. And then at night, they're going to run to the bride's house with torches to do like this celebration and excitement. Now, I was thinking about it, and I was like, if a group of people were running to your house with torches, like, that's typically not a very, like, that's a, that's not a good thing, right? Like, you had one pitchfork, and you have a, you have a mob. Um, so, I don't know if they were like, special torches, or they were cheering, like, exciting things instead of scary things, but either way, this is what happened, and they would go to the, the bride's house with, you know, her bridesmaids with the torches, and they would do, like, speeches, and a lot of, like, just goodwill things and celebrate a little bit there. And then, they, and then the, the groom would take the bride to his place and then everyone would follow them and they would do this really long party, festival, ceremony, all of that at his place. Now, this whole uh, time could last, it usually lasted two to three days, up to seven days. That's a long time. I, I on the big five, am a 95% extrovert. Uh, that is dwindling by the day. But I will say that... Uh, I could not do, like, I love you all, but I could, like, if your wedding was three days, I would duck out day one. I'd be like, this was great. You guys are married. So proud of you. Go to Cancun. Like, just, I'm done, okay? But this was not the culture then. It was, your life was often paused by festivals, by mourning, and by wedding celebrations. I don't know how they got anything done, but apparently they did. None of them probably had dogs to worry about feeding. They were probably on their own. But, I mean, they were gone all the time. And so weddings would last several days. The best way that I can, like, modernize it is if you have a destination wedding. Let's say you're like, hey, we're just going to invite our closest family and friends and those who can afford it, and we're going to fly to Costa Rica. And we're going to have our wedding ceremony on, like, the second day. And then we're just going to have a good time for, like, the next six days. As a family, we'll have dinner together, but we'll go play in the beach and the sand and pool or whatever. But it's, like, this super fun. The whole week is sort of centered around celebrating which is still a long time, but you're having this great time and you're celebrating. Because remember, feasts in this culture were very rare. Like you didn't just normally have good wine or eat good food. It was really only in times of celebration that you brought out all these fun, awesome things. So that's the only way I can modernize this, to tell you that you know, it was a good time, not a terrible time, where they're like, "Ugh, i got to be here for five days. So let's get into the passage now. I think you'll start to understand uh, what is going on here. On the third day, there was a wedding at Canaan Galilee. That's how we get the Wednesday. Jesus' mother was there, and, and Jesus and his disciples were also invited to the wedding. Uh, as I was reading a bunch of different commentaries on this passage, uh, one commentator had this spicy take that the reason they ran out of wine was because Jesus had a plus 12 instead of a plus 1 to the wedding, um, which I thought was pretty good. You don't often get funny, humorous you know, jokes out of reading commentaries, so I thought I'd take advantage of that one and share it with you. And uh, most... Commentators did not like that view, so uh, I, would not, I would not share that one from the hilltops, but, because it says they were, you know, invited. Uh, maybe they drank a lot, I don't know, but either way, they were invited to the wedding, Jesus was invited to the wedding, his mom was invited to the wedding, this is a lot of times where we get the assumption that Jesus' dad had died at this point, because he would have been invited as well, and he's not there. Um, but regardless, they're at this wedding, okay, The couple and their families had got this wedding um, planner, if you will, which we call the steward, head steward, and he went out to Costco and bought a bunch of the 1.75 liter bottles of wine, right? Tons of them. Uh, And all of a sudden, um, we hit this issue in verse 3. When the wine ran out, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no wine left. And that's not good, guys. Now, if you, I went to your wedding, and three days in, you ran out of wine, I would have no hard feelings. I would be like, you know what? I've had a good time. This has been great. It's okay that you ran out of wine. I mean, I think that's, ex- that's expected. Like, I have ran up your bill this last three days with food and lodging and wine and whatever. I think it's okay that you're out of wine. However, in this culture, massive issue. Massive issue. Not just like physical, like there's drunks at this wedding and they need their fix. Like, social and legal issue. Uh, scholar J. Duncan M. Derrett says that in the ancient Near East, there was a strong element of reciprocity about weddings and that it was even possible to take legal action in certain circumstances against a man who had failed to provide the appropriate wedding gift. So, gentlemen, imagine if you're going to propose to your girlfriend and you get her this nice ring that you saved up for and you give it to her and she's pumped and she's like, yes, and then she takes it home and her dad's like, that's not going to do. And he goes to the court of common pleas and, and writes up a little, he gets his lawyer involved in suing you because your ring was pitiful. Uh, you're like, that's ridiculous, right? But the reciprocity in these families' relationships in marriage was really important. It was a sense of honor and value and respect. It would be the same as if, let's say, you marry off your daughter, and, and uh, you're not sure of her future husband, and at the wedding he's just acting like a complete idiot. You're kind of embarrassed, because even though he's acting like an idiot, you're like, he's a part of your family now, and you gave his daughter to him. So you're embarrassed by the fact that like, he is respons- you're responsible essentially for him. That's how it felt in this culture. So if one family did not um, reciprocate in a, in a certain way, it would be very dishonoring to not only their family, but cause relational strain in the future. This is why in this time, in a lot of different civilizations in this time, the class systems were very set. A really wealthy person would not marry a very poor person because they couldn't reciprocate. And it was dishonoring for the wealthy people, and it was also a sense of insecurity and shame for the poor people. And so most people didn't really over, like it was very stratified in who they married in their classes. But all we know here is for whatever reason they ran out, maybe they didn't buy enough wine because they were poor. Maybe they didn't realize they they brought some drinkers. Maybe the party extended way longer than they thought it would, right? There's all these different reasons. Um, Maybe they didn't uh, equip the head steward with the right head count. Who knows? Uh, what the reason was, but the only way that I can think about this was how bad this would feel, because it's very hard for us to be like this is a big deal. Let's say you go to the Costa Rica, inclusive, right? You pay a good amount of money to go. You love your family. You're having a great time. It's seven days long. Day four, they're like, hey, we're out of food. And you're like, what do you mean? Like, no, we have no more food. We're out. I don't know. We miscounted. There's no more food for the next three days you're here. I don't know about you, but I would want my money back. I'd be like, I just paid all this money, and I'm gonna starve for three days on this beautiful beach with my friends and family, find me some food, right? So it's hard for us to imagine because it's just wine, but that is the level of the seriousness of what we're dealing with here. And the fact that this family are being sh- could feel shame and could take legal action was a big deal. You best believe if I can't have food for three to seven days, I want like some sort of refund, right? Or a travel voucher. Honestly, I probably wouldn't go back ever again. But if you can imagine starving on the beach with your family at a, at a great celebration, it would be really devastating. So this is the level of severity when when Jesus' mom comes up to him and says, hey, they have no wine left. His reply at face value is very hard to understand. He says in verse 4, woman, why are you saying this to me? My time has not yet come. I'm going to tell you right now, if you're married and you've tried this line, it does not go over well. Using the word woman, really in any context, does not work. There's no graceful say, hey, woman. It just doesn't sound right. Um, and that is the issue we deal with when we translate a Bible that wasn't written in English, believe it or not, into English. Jesus' word he's using here is an extreme word of endearment and respect. Now, the difficulty of this is that it translates woman, which to us, even when you read it, feels like sort of salty, Um, but what it's getting at is a deep level of respect and honor. We know this because this is the exact same word that he uses when he's on the cross, and he's telling John, this is now your mother, Woman, this is now your son. So there's an extreme, and her response is not one of, you know, anger. It's one of understanding. Uh, and so what he's doing here is actually, I, I would translate it better, maybe my lady. I don't even know of a better translation. That's the best I can do. So. But my lady, he's basically saying, like, why are you worrying about this? Don't, just trust me. It's at, my time's not yet. Meaning, like, I, I want you to trust now when my timing of everything's going to happen. And so he's not dismissing her necessarily, but he's more so comforting her and allowing her to know, hey, I'm, so, I'm in control now. Don't, you don't have to worry. And that's the best way to describe this. So you don't need to scratch out women in your Bible, but just know when you read that. Or if you're in a small group of guys, you have to tell them you can't just talk to women like women, okay? You can't just be like, woman, I need this, okay? That's not how that's going to work. So then the next verse... Her response, which shows that she's not angry, she doesn't even respond to him. She looks to the servants. His mother told the servants, whatever he tells you, do it. So she's like, this, there's like code happening here, right? Like if you're a disciple listening, you're like, what is happening right now? There's code happening. Why is her response this way? Her response is this way because the word that he uses, woman, that I've communicated, in this culture and in this language would have never been used to describe your mom. Right, Like if you grow up, some of you maybe start calling your parents by their first name. I think that's kind of, I still call my mom mom. But you would never use the word that he used for his mother for that word. It was never uh, used. And so what he's doing is he's using the word woman in this context as a specific way. It's implying a different relationship. And so what he's doing is he's basically saying, hey, uh, our, our, our relationship is changing now. You were my mother. You took care of me. You've done an amazing job. But now my time has come, and I am now going to be the Messiah, and I am now on my ministry. Therefore, our relationship has changed to where actually now you're like, I'm your Savior, believe it or not. And so by him implying with this word, he's essentially drawing that the time has come. Even though he says my hour is not yet come, he's kind of saying it's on our time, me and the Father's time. He's letting her know, hey, the relationship has now changed. Uh, the best way I could describe this interaction is what I would think of as, like, in welcome week, right? Let's say you're you're going to college, and it's move-in day, and your parents come with you, and they, you know, uh, you're, you're, like, parents are trying to make friends for you. They're like, we trust that we parented you well, but, like, also we're going to help you make friends. And you're like, mom, dad, please stop. I was an RA for a few years at a Christian school, and we had to help all the students move in, and i cannot to tell you how many times, like, a mom was, like, making friends for her son And you're just like, this is a tough one, right? This is tough. Because, you know, it's a really delicate moment. One of the hardest for parents is letting their kids go off into their own world, whether it's their first apartment, their first job, they're going to school or moving, whatever. Really hard for them, right? And in the same way, this is kind of what's going on. What's funny, though, is when I was in RA, I I saw all different parent relationships. I saw some like that, and then I saw some where the minivan just slowed down to five miles per hour, and it was just like, they just kind of kicked him out with a case of Gatorade and was like go have a great time in college, son. We love you. Bye. And then you never even met the parents. And there's definitely different ways to do it. But what is happening is there is this moment where relationship is changing. And some of you may have still went home to do laundry. Your mom did your laundry in college. Good for you. But at some point, you got to do your own laundry. And that changes the relationship in the way that you see your parents and the way that they see you. And that's the way it should be. It's healthy and normal. It's actually totally normal that once your parents, once you're older, maybe actually there can be a friendship less than it is a parenting relationship, more of a sage relationship than it is this intense parenting relationship. And in the same way, that's basically what's happening is Jesus is saying that the time is coming, on our time, trust in this process, trust that I'm doing what I need to be doing. And that's why she essentially just immediately switches to the servants because she knows what's happening here. And also, if we're taking it from her point of view, she's pretty pumped. I mean, she went through scandal for, for having a baby out of wedlock, right, with Joseph, had heard all these prophecies, treasured them up in her heart, was excited about who Jesus was to become, found out their cousin, John the Baptist, is passing off the baton to your son, and you're like, it's happening, right? You know what God wants to do through your son. Uh, and she's just excited. Like, who can blame her, right? Just like parents are excited when you leave, even though they want to hold on sometimes a little longer. So this is a moment of excitement, but also just her trusting in what Jesus wants to do. And so it's actually, I think, a really beautiful emotional moment. I don't know if we can like read that in the, the writing, but this moment for her is the send-off of Jesus being commissioned publicly into starting his ministry uh, in this way. So let's get into the actual sign here. Verses six through eight, now there were six stone, well, stone water jars there for Jewish ceremonial washing, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the water jars with water. And so they filled them at the very top. And then he told them, draw some out and take it to the head steward. And they did. Now, what is happening here is what we call a sign. It says that later in verse 11 that this was the first miraculous sign that Jesus performed. John, as I'd mentioned, is incredibly intentional, and meticulous with the way that he writes his gospel and the the things that he weaves through it. If you've noticed on the title slide, can you go back to the title slide? We have seven uh, triangles this way, seven triangles this way. Those are symbolic for the seven discourses, which are teachings, and seven signs that Jesus will give in the gospel of John. Now, if you look at the signs, we're in what was called the first sign. This is the first of seven, and the seventh will lead to the ultimate sign, which is the resurrection Why seven, you ask? Seven is the number in this culture for perfection, or wholeness, or completeness is the best way to describe it. And so Jesus is fulfilling his completeness through small amounts of teaching and and signs that prove what he is doing is saving the world of their sins and and defeating death. The first sign, what's important about it, and the reason why this design looks like this is because the sign itself is not the sign. It is a sign to something else, much greater But the sign's also awesome, which is confusing, meaning when he heals someone, you're like, that's amazing, great, let's just stop there. And Jesus would say, that is great physically, that is great for the next 60 to 70 years, but what about eternity? And so all the signs that he's doing are pointing to a much greater sign. The signs that he performs are a physical, flesh understanding of human flourishing on earth, but they point to something much deeper and greater, which is spiritual life for eternity. So if you had to choose right now, let's just say that you, um, you lost feeling in your legs and you went paralyzed, you had to choose between walking on earth for the rest of your life or being in heaven forever. Pretty easy answer, right? But it's actually not, right? Because this is all we know right now. We have to trust the fact that all of this is real and we have to believe in the fact that, that Jesus is going to follow through on his promises and that he is who he says he is, that he can't do what he wants to do. And so signs are small little moments for us to realize that God's heart for us is much greater than even these little things. And this first sign is important because the first one is bringing in all of the baggage of the Israelite Jewish culture for the last several hundred years. So the first one is his way of saying, here is now the trajectory that will be shifted. And so as we look at what he's talking about, John brings up there's basically six giant water jugs for Jewish ceremonial washing. In this culture, not only the law, the code, was to be clean when you're eating, ritualistically clean, also physically clean. But, uh, and you would wash your hands before you ate as a ceremonial like cleansing, if you had done anything that would cause you to be unclean. And if you eat with people who are unclean, you have the ability to potentially become unclean as well, which affects your status through the temple and worship and all these type of things. So every time you ate, you wash your hands, which is not that different from today, but we do it for very different reasons, right? There's no ceremonial washing, really. Uh, it's just like, get the germs off your hands so you don't get sick. But in this culture, this is a several-day wedding. They're washing their hands quite a bit, so there's a, like a need for a lot of water. So what does Jesus do? He tells the servants, go fill up these jugs to the top, to the brim, uh, which would take a while. Uh, there's not just like a faucet. They just turn on and all the jugs fill up. I mean, this is we're talking probably a couple of hours. These servants are just like, whatever, I'm getting paid by the hour. So they go and they, they get, fill up these water jugs to the absolute brim. says so they filled them to the very top, Now, what Jesus is doing here is really powerful. He's he's basically proving that we are going to fill the Jewish law to the absolute brim, and it's still not going to be capable of doing what it needs to do. The ritual cleaning that you need will still fall short. The laws that God has given you to reveal his heart are just, you just can't do it. (laughs) You're flubbing all of them. And so he takes the fullness of the Jewish law, And he turns it into something much different and much more beautiful and also much more useful. And that is wine. And so he takes um, the wine over to the head steward. uh, Verse 9, the head steward tastes the water that has been turned into wine, not knowing where it had come from, though the servants had drawn the water they knew. He called the groom in and he said to him, everyone serves the good wine first and then the cheaper wine when the guests are drunk. You have kept the good wine until now. And then it says, Jesus did this as his first of his miraculous signs in Cana of Galilee. And it did two things. It revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Because remember, his disciples had known Jesus growing up. They're taking a risk. They follow John the Baptist. They say, John the Baptist says, this is the new one. This is it. This is him. They're like, okay. They've been walking in the rabbi's footsteps for a few days, and they're like, is this? Like, what did we just do, right? Uh, maybe you felt that when you made a career change, or you started your own company, or you like, moved somewhere, and you're like, what did we just do? And they're, so they're feeling this tension of like, what, is this guy really What he, who he says he is? And then he does this, and they're just astonished, right? They can't believe it. They're also Jewish students who knew the Jewish law, who knew that there was deep implications with water and wine, which I'll get into in a second. But what is happening here is a very um, logical thing to do in first century weddings. Uh, you put out the good wine first, when everyone's palate is still pretty good. And as they drink more and more, you give them cheap wine because who cares? They can't even tell, right? And that's just how you do it. And so the steward who was in charge of the wedding is like, what are you doing? You know, he's been to a lot of weddings. This is his job. He's like, what are you doing? Why are you serving this now? And Jesus made some really great wine. Now, there's a lot of cool things that we pull from this story. A couple of which I've never really thought of before. But the first one, uh, which is just most practically is that he, as I mentioned, he saved these families from a social embarrassment and a legal issue and, and tumultuous relationship. So he's restoring family relationships together, which is amazing. Uh, the second thing that he does is, uh, the only way I can describe this is, let's just say you have your wedding, and uh, in our in, there are a lot of white claws, and there are a lot of all the drinks, there's no sparkling water, there's nothing to be found, no beverages, right, just, just bathroom sink water, and all of a sudden, your family friend, who's from California, specifically the Napa Valley region, is like, no problem. I got some drinks in the back of my car. I drove across country. Here we go. They bring out 730 bottles of fine wine. Not just any fine wine, but the 2013 Ghost Horse Vineyard Spectre Cabernet Sauvignon, which is around $4,000 a bottle. And now you got 730 bottles of wine at this party of wine that is probably the best wine that you can buy, and no one has ever probably even tasted. I don't know about you, but that'd be awesome. But also, what a gift. Because, I mean, if you don't drink all that wine, that's $3 million in wine. Would anybody else like that in their wedding gift? You're like, hey, guys, we have some really great wine, but please don't drink it. I'm going to flip this. This is going to be our retirement, (laughs) right? But no, I mean, if somebody brought you this wine, I mean, hey, maybe they drank it all. Who knows, right? And maybe it's not $4,000 a bottle, right? That's a very high-end bottle. But I would like to believe that when Jesus makes wine and it's supposed to be proving his kingdom, it's very good wine. And even the steward's like, this is some pretty good wine. So let's just say even $50 a bottle, $30 a bottle, 730, 730 bottles of wine, that's how much he made, that's a lot of wine. So there's the saves his family, blesses the family with a nice little chunk gift, if they don't drink at all, or even if they do, they probably have a great time. And then there's this symbolic reality that everyone is, is sort of wrapping their heads around, especially the disciples. Why do the disciples believe? Are they believing because he actually did a sign and he turned water to wine, or are they believing because it's starting to connect the dots? I think it's a little bit of both. What he's doing here is he's communicating the need for his new wine to be taking place. In the Old Testament culture, anytime we talk about the, the idea of water, water always symbolizes a negative connotation. Even when we're baptized, we're baptized into like the, the grasp of sin and death, right? And then we're made alive coming out of the water in Christ. If you let somebody sit in the water for a very long time, they would die, right? You bring them out of the water so they can breathe and they can experience new life. And that was the understanding of water at that time. Same with why you, you washed off the, cleanly, the uncleanliness of your hands in this water. New life, right? So he's taking this idea of water and then he's communicating a different meaning with wine. Now, why wine? John knows why wine because John writes another book at the end of your Bible called Revelation in apocalyptic poetic literature uh, that has been miscommentated for, for decades. But one of the stories in Revelation is this idea of the wedding between the lamb and his people. The lamb, that is the Messiah, the Jesus, the The groom, and his bride, which are us, believers, those who choose to place their faith in Jesus. And so what Jesus is doing is he's saying, here's sign number one, here's all the past that you've known, and here's me taking the water and the, the shallowness of the religious law, and here's me turning it into something new, wine at a wedding, which is a foretaste of the wedding for eternity between me and my people. And that is what is blowing disciples' minds, is the idea that Jesus is, is reviving up something very new that they had known about in small inklings through the prophet Isaiah and other scriptures, but have now are seeing come to fruition. And so though it's just turning water to wine, and you know, even if it had no monetary value, it's just like extending a party for a few more days. It doesn't feel very significant. The, the reality behind the sign is something much greater and much more beautiful. Uh, Leon Morris puts it best in his commentary. He says, Jesus changed the water of Judaism into the wine of Christianity. The water of Christlessness into the wine of the richness and the fullness of eternal life in Christ. The water of the law into the wine of the gospel. And so that is the end of Welcome Week. And as you can see, it revealed His glory, which is His purpose on earth to honor the Father. And it is for us to be not only wowed and believed in the moment, but also for yet to come. And so, this is, the, I think, the main point we pull from today. You've maybe, you've maybe heard the phrase, the best is yet to come. Well, I would argue that in this case, the best has come and is still yet to come, which is very confusing. How is the best here, but also not yet to come? But that is exactly what we as believers believe. It's the here-not-yet theology. It means that we believe that when we believe and place our faith in Jesus, that we experience the best in that moment, because we experience true life and freedom from bondage and sin in that moment and moving forward. But we also believe that the world is not the way that God wants, and the world, the, the world will be restored through Jesus and his return and his reconciling all things to himself. And so in that, we have something much greater to also look forward to. Does that mean that we play the get-out-of-jail-free card and then we just wait and we coast until eternity in the wedding? No, we get foretastes of it now. That's Jesus' priority. His first sign was giving you a foretaste of what is to come. And so for many of us, you know, you can find yourself being a spectator in this sign at at different areas. I think about the disciples who I've known a little bit uh, about the Messiah, and it's obviously being interpreted by different rabbis, and they're trying to figure out, is this guy really the Messiah? And they're skeptical, but they're curious, and they're there. And they see this moment, and it just it, it hits for them. This is the new wine that we need. And then there's Mary, who honestly is awesome, and is like, I'm so excited for my son. I know he's going to do what he needs to do. I trust him. You guys just listen to whatever he says. Maybe you're Mary, and you're just like really excited for what God's doing in your life. Right? Um, or maybe here, I even think about the bridegroom who like, had no idea what he was getting into when he invited Jesus, and now he's sitting on a lot of money, a.k.a. a lot of wine, and like, has just been given this beautiful start to his relationship with his uh, families and marriage and also experienced this sign at his own very wedding and just like being so grateful for what you did not deserve but was given to you and that you get to remember, hopefully, you know, for a lifetime. So wherever you find yourself at in that journey, I tell you the truth is the best is here now and the best is still yet to come. And so in our time of formation, as we transition here, I want to invite Jerry up. And we, we always do four things uh, that we offer for you guys to become formed into the image of Christ. First one is uh, prayer in the back. People would love to pray for you about anything and everything. They're here just for that today. If you're also back there, there's a giving box in the back. We call it the bringing box because we're not giving God anything that isn't already his. And so we're bringing back what is his as an opportunity of worship, faith, obedience. Uh, there's also the breading cup, which is up front in the back, gluten-free. That is grape juice, not wine, if you're wondering today, because there's a lot of wine talk in the Bible right now. Um, and that is a reminder of the sacrifice, the blood that is spilled in Jesus' death, that he partakes as symbolically before he dies, as a reminder of the wine that had to be, the new wine of Jesus that had to be spilled for us uh, that we remember as followers of Jesus. And so you can take that at any point as well. And the last thing is we have a couple of reflection questions. I talked about maybe who you identify with most in this story, the bridegroom, the disciples, or Mary. Um, where would you place yourself in that story? Where do you feel trepidations? Where do you feel excitement? What is something new that you're looking at now? Are you sure, starting to get a deeper, full understanding of who Jesus is and what John's intention is For belief, The second thing is how does this sign deepen your understanding of Jesus' love and sacrifice for you and others? And then third, are you willing to believe that the best is here now? It's belief in Jesus and also yet to come for eternity. Some of you don't believe and you're like, is this really true? Some of you have been a follower for a long time and you still need to be reminded that the best is here now but also yet to come. The world of suffering and pain and agony and difficulty is present while we follow Jesus here, but it is not the way that God wants it and it is not the way that it will be for eternity. So wherever you find yourself on that, I just encourage you to take that before the Spirit today in this time and then we will close in one more song. Thank you for listening to the Contrast Church Podcast. To learn more about us and how you can be a part of it, visit contrast.church.